Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I'm Diane Hartshorn. We didn't do this last week because we had guests for last week's episode, which was fabulous. I always love talking to our guests from other cemeteries because we learn a lot that way about Mm -hmm. the cemetery. So last week we featured Laurel Hill Cemetery, which we learned is actually two cemeteries. And it's only because when they had to expand, they couldn't expand at their original location. They had to go across the river in about 10 minutes down the river. But uh, we had so much fun talking about Laurel Hill and um, learning about the history and the arboretum and all of that. So thank you to Nancy and Sarah and Aaron who were on last week with us to discuss that. But because we did that, we forgot to wish our listeners, our Jewish listeners who celebrate Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah which began last week. Um, The last day of Hanukkah is actually, by the time this airs, will be tomorrow, the 15th, uh, Friday the 15th. So uh, this episode this week is our Hanukkah episode. Um, We've done one, I think, every year since we've started the podcast. We've tried to incorporate Hanukkah um, and some Jewish traditions into um, our December episodes. And I do want to preface this one by saying... This one does not, Diane and I are not sharing our political opinions um, in this particular episode with everything that's going on um, in Palestine and Israel and between all of that. The reason that Israel exists as it does now is the result of what we're talking about in today's episode, but we are not going into those politics, the current modern day politics of it, um, and we are not sharing either of our political opinions about what's going on over there or anything We do want to just share about Hanukkah and about the resilience of um, the Jewish community because of World War II. And so I just wanted to throw that little bit out there because. And it's, it's, oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to. No, I just didn't. I just, we're not a political podcast, but this just happens to align with some of the stuff that happens to be going on in the world right now as well. No, it's like the same, like our very first Hanukkah story, which involved the, um, their participation and support during the American Revolution, it's not only is this podcast and those other episodes Jewish history, but also American history. Right. And that's why it's that's why we are sharing it for and no other reason. Yes. That. It's just important history. And while some of what we're talking about today is very depressing, and I will give a heads up to listeners, if you have a hard time hearing stories about the Holocaust and the atrocities that were committed during the Holocaust, we're not going into great detail about those atrocities, but we do mention them in today's episode. So just be warned if that bothers you. Um, really, the ultimate story is about resiliency and you know a light in the dark and all of that today. So that's what today is. I just learned some interesting history a few weeks ago about one particular menorah and then it led me down rabbit holes about other menorahs during world war ii and so that's kind of what we wanted to talk about today so this week's story is one of light out of darkness and takes us across the atlantic ocean to the city of landsberg omlech in southeast germany and for clarification we'll just say landsberg going forward but if you want to look up more information on this city, it's Landsberg on Lech. And Lech is the name of the river that runs through this particular city. Uh, and it is in the region known as Bavaria, so the southeast region of Germany. 
The city was an important point on the Via Claudia Augusta, a Roman trade route which came up from Italy and headed towards Augsburg. It received its first town charter in the 13th century, but was burnt to the ground several decades later. In modern history, Landsberg also gained notoriety as the location where Adolf Hitler was imprisoned in 1925 for high treason and the place where he wrote his manifesto, Mein Kampf. As such, with the accession to power of the National Socialists, the town became a place of pilgrimage for the Nazi party. In fact, it was considered by the National Socialists to be one of their, and that's in quotations, three main towns in Bavaria, along with Munich and Nuremberg. And there were plans to build a gigantic center for youth parades and rallies, which fortunately were never realized. Originally located just outside the city limits is Judischer Friedhof Landsberg am Luck, a small Jewish cemetery containing about 600 victims of the Nazi terror that were killed in the nearby subcamp called Erfitting, or in English, subcamp number seven one of the 11 subcamps that made up the concentration camp called Dachau. The cemetery is now completely surrounded by the industrial section of the city of Landsberg. During the final years of World War II, thousands of Jewish citizens were killed within the camps, either by gas, being shot to death, or they perished of starvation and disease. The small cemetery is one of the 14 cemeteries in the region containing the remains of Jewish victims from the subcamp complex. The small cemetery contains only a handful of monuments and is enclosed by what I believe from looking at the pictures and I couldn't find verification of it, but I believe is a concrete fence topped with red tiles. A small roofed structure on one side has windows, each outlined by the Star of David. The metal gates at the entrance are also decorated with the Star of David. A gravel path leads visitors to the different monuments. In the center is a tall, narrow monument topped by a blue Star of David. The inscription carved below is in Hebrew, but translated in English is a part of Psalm 37 of David, which says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. The victims of Erpfing concentration camp erected in memory in 1950. On April 29, 1945, American forces liberated Dachau. There were 67,665 registered prisoners in Dachau and its subcamps. More than half of this number were in the main camp. Of these, 43,350 were categorized as political prisoners, while 22 1,100 were Jews, with the remainder fallen into various other categories. Just four days before, Nazi soldiers, knowing that Americans were on their way, forced more than 7,000 prisoners, mostly Jews, on a death march from Dachau to Tegernis, far to the south. During the death march, the Germans shot anyone who could no longer continue. Many also died of hunger cold or exhaustion. As the Americans neared the camp, they found more than 30 railroad cars filled with bodies brought to Dachau, all in advanced state of decomposition. In early 1945, American forces liberated the prisoners who had been sent on the death march. So 
just horrific. And I don't know if you've ever watched any of the documentaries about the concentration camps. Sometimes there's footage included in, of what um, was seen uh, when the the American soldiers got there and the allies got there to liberate them. And it was just horrific. horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and again, a good portion were Jewish um, people, not everybody, as they said, there were a lot of other political prisoners, um, different religions, you know, the Nazis hated pretty much everybody. So if they didn't mm-hmm. like you or what you believed in or stood for, you were one of their prisoners. World War II uprooted and dislocated an unprecedented number of people. So not just the people that were sent to the concentration camps, but all across Europe, some 55 million in Europe alone. When the war ended, there were approximately 11 million displaced persons in Europe, 8 million of which were located in Germany. They included about 6 million civilian volunteer and forced laborers, 2 million prisoners of war, and 700,000 surviving concentration camp prisoners. Additionally, thousands of anti-communists and former Nazi collaborators from Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, and the Soviet Union, and Yugoslavia fled the Red Army, which was Russia, as it reconquered Eastern Europe. Displaced persons, or DP, which is how we'll refer to them mostly through the rest of the episode, displaced person, or DP camps, were established as a way to house refugees until they could return home or find new homes in other parts of the world. Between May and September 1945, most displaced persons willingly returned home with Allied military personnel overseeing the departure of an estimated 33,000 displaced persons per day. Others were forcibly repatriated at the hands of the Soviet authorities. By the end of September, however, 1.2 million displaced persons remained in Germany. Although liberation brought freedom to those persecuted and imprisoned by the Nazis, It was also a time of confusion and difficulty. Those who had survived the Holocaust had to come to terms with the loss of their family, home, friends, businesses, and belongings. For many, there was nowhere and no one to return to. On top of this, camp survivors in particular also suffered from poor health due to years of malnutrition and poor sanitation. A displaced persons camp was created in Landsberg in the summer of 1945, shortly after liberating the concentration camps. Initially, the Landsberg DP camp held a variety of refugees, but in October of 1945, the camp's Jewish-American commandant, Irving Haymont, insisted that the camp become solely a Jewish DP camp. The camp consisted almost entirely of adults or older children, an American committee had visited in 1946, noted that there were no children under the age of five anywhere in the camp. Upon its initial formation, Irving Haymont wrote a letter to his wife saying, with few exceptions, the people of the camp themselves appear demoralized beyond hope of rehabilitation. They appear to be beaten both spiritually and physically, with no hopes or incentives for the future. This was one of the reasons he insisted on Landsberg becoming a solely Jewish camp. It would allow the refugees to regain their heritage and build hope for a new future. The saddest part of that is there were no children under five, which means all of those children in that vicinity in those concentration camps were killed. 
Yeah. It hits hard when you think of it that way. Landsberg was the second largest DP camp in the American zone. Samuel Greengauze, a chairman of the Central Council of Liberated Jews in the American zone, was the founding editor of the camp's newspaper, first printed in October 1945. This newspaper gained a reputation as one of the best in the American zone. Landsberg profited from a group of capable leaders whose guidance aided both the camp and the entire Sheret Haplet, meaning surviving remnants in Hebrew. Sheret Haplet became well-known because of an American Army Jewish chaplain named Abraham Klosner. In June 1945, Klosner made the first list of survivors and called it Sheret Haplet. The list grew to include 25,000 names and turned into a six-volume registry of Jewish displaced persons. The name Sheret Haplet became widely accepted. In February 1946, when elected representatives of survivors gathered in Munich, they called themselves the Congress of the Sheret Haplet. As Irving Haymont hoped, it wasn't long before life in Landsberg DP camp began to thrive. In addition to its fabulous newspaper, an organization for rehabilitation through training, or ORT for short, was established. This created a series of schools and vocational programs to prepare the refugees for their new lives outside of the camp. There were several several children. Um, <clears throat> there were several children's schools, including a Tamon Torah and a Klausenberger yeshiva schools of religious training. The idea of the ORT was not a new idea. The first ORT was established in Russia in 1880 to assist impoverished Russian Jews by instructing them in trades and agriculture, including farming, sewing, and mechanics. But the same principles were applied to the DP camps of World War II. Landsberg also supported a mikvah, which is a Jewish ritual bath, a kosher kitchen, and a radio station. The camp had a rich cultural life that included a theater, cinema, and a Hatzumir choir. Landsberg had the first non-elected camp committee for DPs, which included a police force and a society for the observance of the Sabbath. The camp began preparing kosher meat early in 1946, when 2,643 Orthodox Jews registered for kosher beef in Landsberg. Even while imprisoned, many Jews continued to find ways to honor their heritage and traditions. Of course, one of those traditions is the celebration of Hanukkah, which honors the victory of the Maccabee brothers over the Syrian Greek king in 165 BCE, allowing the Jews of Palestine to once again practice their religion. To commemorate the event, it was decided that a holiday would be observed annually by burning lights for eight days. And thus, Hanukkah, also known as the Festival of Lights, was born. It is not considered a religious holiday since God did not have a direct hand in the victory, but its significance becomes more important to many Holocaust survivors as it becomes a poignant reminder that even in the darkest times, the flame of resilience can be kept alive. The main centerpiece used in the Hanukkah celebration is a multi-branch candelabra called a menorah. The menorah is first mentioned in the biblical book of Exodus, according to which the design of the lamp was revealed to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. The candlestick was to be forged out of a single piece of gold and was to have six branches. 
three out on one side and three out on the other. The cup atop the central shaft, which is somewhat elevated to signify the Sabbath, was flanked by three lights on each side. It was forged and put in the tabernacle, and its cups in the shape of flower blossoms suggested the tree of life. The Hanukkah lamp is an eight-branched imitation, so slightly bigger, uh, of the original tabernacle menorah that is used to celebrate the rededication of the second temple. The lamp has taken many forms through the ages, but its essential feature has been eight receptacles for oil or candles and a holder for the shamash, which is the servant light, which is used for kindling the other lights. During each night of Hanukkah, candles are inserted into the menorah from right to left, but are lighted from left to right. The lamp is displayed in a highly visible location, and depictions of it are often found on public buildings, synagogues, and private homes. In the concentration camp Theronstadt, one inmate managed to swipe a block of wood from the Nazis in 1942 and carved an ornate anakaya, a special kind of menorah with nine candle holders and a star of David. A Hebrew inscription curves over the top. Who is like you, O Lord, among the celestials? According to history.com, for most of the year, the menorah remained hidden. It was forbidden to celebrate Jewish holidays or to teach children about Judaism. But once a year, usually in the depths of December, it was brought forth and lit. The lamp was not recovered until after the war and is now in the permanent collection of the Jewish Museum in New York. And it's really cool. I'll see if I can include a picture um, because it's beautifully carved. So whoever did it, Obviously, they were risking their lives to carve it um, in the concentration camp, but they took their time and it's absolutely gorgeous. Even though they were starving, 11 inmates of Bergen-Belsen saved bits of fat from their food and created candles with wicks from threads of clothing. In 1943, they carved a raw potato to serve as their menorah. Rabbi Israel Shapiro chanted the blessings to the assembled inmates. On the third blessing, in which God is thanked for having kept us in life and preserved us and enabled us to reach this time, he spoke these words even though he had already suffered the loss of his wife, only daughter, son-in-law, and grandchild. All across Europe, throughout the concentration camps and those in hiding, Jews found creative ways to create, menorah, to create menorahs and keep the flames of hope burning. There were menorahs crafted from batteries, wood, and aluminum foil. In 2011, a very special menorah was the centerpiece at the Hanukkah celebration at the White House in Washington, D.C. The menorah had been created at the Landsberg DP camp. The menorah was a permanent home at the Jewish Museum in New York City. The menorah was made in 1945 out of cartridge scraps and shell casings in one of the ORT vocational shops. The metal is smooth and shine to a copper polish. There are eight candle holders. The center of the menorah is topped with an orb that holds a star of David shining above the whole piece. The base is hexagon with a plate on each side with different inscriptions, including the phrase, a great miracle happened there. The phrase refers to the miracle of Hanukkah but many also poignantly signify the liberation and, sal and salvation of the Jewish refugees. And that particular phrase, a great miracle happened there, is also that is inscribed on the dreidels 
that the children play with during the holidays and in the Hebrew letters. Um, but yes, they also included it on this particular menorah. The menorah was given to General Joseph T. McNary, who led the United States forces in Europe from November 1945 to March 1947. He looked after the displaced persons camps in Germany and Austria during that time. General McNary wrote, the residents of this center have established a number of training schools and several forms of craftsmanship. And in one of these schools, the students have fabricated a menorah in the Hebrew tradition. They have inscribed and presented it to me as an expression of their gratitude to the armed forces of the United States. I feel that in even greater measure, it symbolizes the restoration to health of these victims of Nazism and their will to live productive and useful lives. It was also General McNary who helped make a complete edition of the Talmud for the Jewish survivors in Europe who wanted to learn. When Rabbi Philip S. Bernstein asked him, so he worked hard to find paper because it was very scarce at this time, especially in that part of Bavaria, brought the Talmud sets from America and arranged for a printing plant to publish the edition in 1948. By 1947, the number of camp inhabitants began to decline as people began to leave for America, Canada, Australia, and other countries. By May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the State of Israel. U.S. President Harry S. Truman recognized the new nation on the same day, and many Jewish refugees living in DP camps throughout Europe began to make their way to Israel. Landsberg also scheduled to be closed on October 15, 1950, but about 1,100 DPs still remained. The camp was fully shut down sometime between November 1950 and April 1951 after all the inhabitants were relocated. In honor of all the Jews who lost their lives in World War II, those who were forced into concentration camps, the survivors, and those who served as soldiers, the Landsberg menorah, as well as the many carved and used in secret, are a testament to Jewish resilience and commitment to preserving their cultural heritage. The flickering flames not only illuminated the physical darkness, but also served as a metaphor for the triumph of hope over despair, becoming beacons of light, silently pro proclaiming the indomitable will of a community determined to rise from the ashes of tragedy. I'm always inspired by these stories because they are, I'm like repeating myself, but they are so inspiring of what these people went through and they still did not give up their faith. No. And it's a good reminder. And these stories happen throughout history. I mean, we've shared some of them on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And if you study any history anywhere in the world, there are stories of people who are oppressed, who are killed for, you know, their color, their religion, their, you know, whatever it is in that part of the right. world that somebody decided they didn't like and decided to blame them for, you know, all the problems that were happening. Um, and yet people came out on the other side, the survivor said, okay, this was horrible, but we are going to move forward and we're going to create life again. We're going to continue. And in this case, continue our Jewish faith and Jewish tradition. You know, those, especially the, the really Orthodox Jews who weren't allowed to continue their traditions when they were in those concentration camps who were forced to eat things that they would not eat, but if they hadn't eaten them probably wouldn't have survived. Right. Um, 
all of those things. And they came out of it and they said, okay, let's start over. We're going to start fresh. And they did. And it's a good reminder to us in modern times that horrible, bad things happen, but we can get through them and we can get through them with strength and courage and grace. Things that, you know, all of these people proved that they could do and they survived. And also, this is why it's so important to remember history, to study history. So, you know, we we have so much to learn, not only from the, his, the history that happened, but also from the people who survived and lived through these um, tragic and extraordinary times. Yeah. And in case anybody's wondering, there are many memorials throughout the U.S. that honor Holocaust victims. There is one of the largest ones in Europe is actually at Landsberg. Um, They have a large memorial there. Uh, Part of it is because they have bits of the concentration camps remaining there and they've been able to create it. The other thing I found sort of poetical justice, I guess, which we didn't talk about because I didn't want to take away from the rest of this episode and the, the sort of the light and symbolism behind the menorahs in this case. but that prison that was there that had actually housed Hitler and then became part of the concentration camps and then was released. But that prison is actually where several uh, prisoners of war that the criminals, the war criminals were actually housed in that prison. And some of them are executed on site there after world war II. So that's where the Americans kept Hmm. some of the people that were imprisoning these Jewish prisoners. They were then in their own turn imprisoned at that particular camp. Um, and it is still a prison today. It's, you know, it's now run by the, um, Germany itself, but for a while it was an ally prison that held those criminals of war um, within That's that prison. So I found that to be sort of poetical justice when I was reading that information. Most definitely. So we thank you for taking time to join us today for these ordinary, extraordinary stories. To learn more about the stories we shared, please visit our website, theordinaryextraordinarycemetery.com, where you will find the resources we use to research this episode. And we want to wish those of you who celebrate Hanukkah these last two nights, happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. And please don't forget to visit us on social media where we share all kinds of cemetery photos, quotes, tidbits, and more. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery and on X at Ord Extra Sim. If you enjoyed this or any of our episodes, please consider leaving a five-star review and a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or our website. Your positive reviews and enthusiasm for our show help others who love cemeteries and history to discover us and our ordinary, extraordinary stories. Until we meet again.